Awesome. Now let's review the symbols really quickly. What's the symbol for creation? Two trees. Excellent. How about the symbol for Abraham? It's a gift. How about the symbol for Sinai? Yeah, two tablets. Symbol for kings? Yeah, what color is the crown? That will be important later on. Good. How about um, the symbol for exile? Yeah, good. A vulture, bird of prey, condor, whatever you're going for. Um, how about the symbol for a temple? It's a temple. And does it have a cloud or not? It does not have a cloud, and that's going to be important as well. And how about key dates? I'll give you the date, and you can see if you can give me the kind of the, the event. So creation, we don't use any dates for that. But what happens in tw uh, 22 B.C.? For the kingdom or for the uh, the period of Abraham. Twenty sorry, twenty two hundred BC. So sorry. Twenty two hundred BC. Yeah, the call of Abraham. Abraham is called, right? And uh, the period of Sinai starts with fourteen fifty BC. What happens there? Yeah, the giving of the commandments, right? The, that's when they get the law. It's just shortly after they leave. And again, that's kind of ballpark figure. They leave Egypt and they get the, the two tablets. How about the, um, the event for kings in 1050? King Saul. They get King Saul. They get their very first king. Great. And then exile, the date is 586. What happens there? They leave Jerusalem, and what is destroyed? The temple is destroyed. The people go into exile. And, um, uh, and then in 539, that's our date for temple. What happens in 539? They're allowed to return. They start the rebuilding process of the temple, and that's going to be completed a few years later in 516. So just a quick review. The Bible is one big redemptive story, just the way that Kirk was telling us. Um, if our brains start going, oh, I'm studying the Old Testament because it's a bonus. It's, it's not a bonus. It's, it is part of the way that God reveals himself to us. And frankly, there's no way of understanding Jesus as a Messiah if we're not steeped in the, in the Hebrew um, uh, history. But there's a, there's a center to that story, sorry, told all throughout history, and the center, of course, is Jesus Christ. So casket empty is this great acronym because it helps us know. The whole point of the story is that we find resurrection, life after death, because Jesus's casket was empty. He resurrects, and that's a promise of our resurrection. So if we were to look at the New Testament, our acronym is empty, Expectations is this period of 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Remember that the last date for the Old Testament is 430 BC, which is when our last prophet writes. Who's our last prophet of the Old Testament? Malachi, or our only Italian prophet, Malici. Period of expectation. So what's happening in Israel during that time? Actually, when I teach New Testament, this is a super interesting period because we don't get that in the scriptures. What's happening with all, I mean, 
Israel changes hands about three times in there. So what about those kingdoms? And then Jesus comes on the scene with the Messiah, and we study the Gospels. And then Pentecost, the arrival of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And then we see the church go out to all nations, and the teaching goes to many different parts of the ancient Mediterranean world, and that's where we get all of the epistles, so the letters of Paul and Peter and John and James. And then yet to come is a look at Revelation and Jesus' second coming. So, with all of that, we're really, which we're getting really close to, John says. <laughs> so let's have a word of prayer and ask for the Lord's blessing on this time. Father, we remember this time these aren't just dates and names. There is a humility with which we approach this text and these topics because we know that your words sown them into scripture and are, is sowing them into our hearts now. And so, Lord, we would pray for that fruitfulness of your word as we meditate on these things and learn. Thank you that we get to do so uh, with each other. In Christ's name, amen. All right, today we're looking specifically at creation. Let's take a look at some of these symbols. You'll notice on the back of your timeline, if you brought your timelines with you, Jay, if you don't mind holding up the back of your timeline, you see all of those symbols on the back have a theological explanation to them. Hey, Andrew, welcome. And so it's really helpful as you're going through the timeline, you go, oh man, what, what do the two trees signify again? I can't remember. So you just turn that timeline around and it'll give you some Bible verses to talk about the nature of God's commandment to eat of one tree and not of the other. And what we learn in, in the creation story is that existence with God comes right alongside obedience to his word. Trusting God's word has to happen in order to be in the presence of God. So what happens for Adam and Eve to lose the presence of God? They disobey his word. They don't choose to leave the garden. They, it comes with an action of disobedience to the commandment. And so what we see is all throughout the Old Testament, whenever God brings a people into relationship with him, he gives them a word to trust. He gives them a commandment. The Old Testament and the New Testament uses the, the word law for that, the law. And Paul says, hey, the law is holy and righteous and good. It's actually something that we're supposed to live toward because it shows people who the God is that we worship. The problem is, when we try to get to God through the law, we find that we fail. That's why we need Jesus Christ. So sure enough, God is going to make a covenant with Adam. If you're going to be in relationship with me, you obey my word. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the other tree in the garden is the tree of life. Great. And so you'll notice all the way down here at yet to come, if you were to come look at the symbol, it's kind of hard to see. Um, there is a beautiful garden in the period of yet to come with an ever-living stream that comes out from the throne of God and right in the center of the garden is one tree. Do you want to guess which of those trees it is? The tree of life, right? We're back in the presence of God, which means presence with God means life. It means eternal life. We can't be in his presence without receiving that eternal life. And then we get a blue crown 
is going to be interesting because God is going to tell Adam and Eve, I rule with perfect justice and mercy. You are to rule as my vice regent in the same way. And in order to show people that you rule like me, I make you in my image. That's the whole idea. And so God is king and ruler and sovereign. He makes kings and queens to rule and be sovereign and to have stewardship and dominion over the realm of God's creation. Great. Except when we lose God's presence, it's because we're not kings and queens who have the heart of God. So we're hoping for a king to come and show us what God's rule really actually looks like. God's going to make a covenant with a coming king, King David, that through his line, an anointed king will come who rules with perfect justice and truth. Your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey in Zechariah 9. All right, so we've got our two trees, we've got our crown, but guess what? There's a deceiver. We're going to learn just a little bit about how the serpent was a very common nemesis in ancient Mediterranean culture. The Babylonians would have had their own serpent. The Egyptians would have had their own serpent. And so there's a real cue on ancient ears going, oh man, serpent, not meant to be trusted. Death comes as a result of their disobedience. And that death, Paul says, trickles down, because Adam is the corporate head of all of humanity, trickles down to everyone. Um, sin continues to increase as the world population increases. <laughs> it's just like if you were to clone me, the sin factor goes up, right? More of us just causes more sin. So God sends judgment. What we're going to find is a pattern that there, in the Old Testament, it happens all the time, and we're going to see it several times just in Genesis 1 through 11. Sin, judgment, grace. And grace follows right on the foothills of judgment. Sin, judgment, grace. So whenever you hear that, I want you to go, bing, sin, judgment, grace. There's the pattern. All humanity sins. Judgment is coming in the form of a flood. What's the grace? God chooses just a remnant to perpetuate humanity after the flood. That's a grace. Whenever we think of flood as eternal destruction, or uh, as, as overwhelming destruction, we can't think of it without remembering God's amazing grace. <laughs> That's two times now that he's just continued to save us. And the rainbow is a sign of God's covenant once more. And guess what? The law is reiterated. If you're going to be in relationship with me, be fruitful, multiply, have, have dominion. It's the same kind of covenant he gives to Adam and Eve. And we're going to find at the very end of Genesis 11, we're going to find hope coming through a genealogy. The book of Genesis in Hebrew is called Toledot. Actually, no, it's called Bereshith because that's beginnings. But um, Toledot is this, is this recurrence of genealogies. Toledot means beginnings. Okay? So if you were to translate that, Genesis, that's the Greek. You've got beginnings or genealogies, kind of the same word there. And so when we think... Genesis, you can think family tree. There are several family trees all through the book of Genesis that show us what God is really up to. There are two main genealogies in these first 11 chapters. The first one traces Adam to Noah in 10 generations, nice and symmetrical. And then the second genealogy traces 
Noah to Abraham, 10 genealogies. But what's beautiful is the very last genealogy, it leaves off whether Abraham has a son or not. And so the whole question is, if God is going to bless the world through Abraham's seed, but we haven't heard if he has a son yet, the whole question is, is God going to have a son? Is Abraham going to have a son? What's the problem? He marries a woman who is barren. Barren. So, if God's going to do this, he's going to have to do it. It's going to have to be miraculous, right? The story of Abraham is going to show us how miraculous it really is. But through Shem's line, um, we're going to find that hope comes to all of humanity. Just connecting the dots here with the Tower of Babel, something that's good to know. is Genesis 10 tells the story of all of the nations and the genealogies. Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. Remember at the Tower of Babel, humanity said, why are we building a tower? We want to build a name. For who? For God? For ourselves. We want to build a name for ourselves. Well, the play on word here is the Hebrew word for name is shame. Shem. And so God is saying, no, 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 I'm going to build a name for you through the line of Shem, a kid named Name. So the whole lesson is when we try to build our la- our uh, a name for ourselves, we fall short. A name comes to us through only God's blessing in relationship with him. Okay, so that's kind of a quick overview of creation. And we already did a bit of review. All right, something to point out. The book of Genesis is going to be covered in these two periods, creation and Abraham. We're not into the second book of the Bible, Exodus, until Sinai. So if you've not read through the entire book of Genesis, you're missing out on really fundamental theology. Um, Creation is only concerned, though, with chapters 1 through 11. This is the passage that Jerry has been preaching on. I think he took eight weeks to do so and just did an amazing, amazing job. You can, you know, all these books belong to Jerry. Do you guys already know that? So all of these books are Jerry's. He just... He needed a place to keep his books, and so John built him a room to do that. But um, Jerry reads his commentaries, and you get that. You get all of the scholarship in his preaching. But he was just concerned about Genesis 1 through 11. This is called primordial history, the primordial history. So when everybody, anybody refers to primordial history, they're referring to uh, the history in Genesis 1 through 11. Savvy? All right. What you see up on the screen are just going to be, in big print, the points in your timeline and right up here. Hey, by the way, I meant to do this the first week, but let me take a moment and, and do so now. Um, the, the woman who wrote this Old Testament curriculum is named Carol Kaminsky, and she was my Old Testament teacher at Gordon-Conwell. She put all this together. And she's written a study guide, which is the basis of all of the notes that I lecture from. So if you really want to go deep on this stuff, in addition to the book that Martin's already reading, uh, this is the one written by Carol Kaminsky that actually works with the timeline. So if you go to casketempty.org, I think that's where all these materials are. And then I was so delighted to see, and I'll pass this around, they just wrote a 18-week Bible study 
based on the Old Testament, and they're going to be writing a New Testament one. The New Testament scholar is a guy named David Palmer. He also teaches adjunct at Gordon-Conwell. Carol's PhD is from Cambridge. David's PhD is from Union Hebrew University, Hebrew Union University. But what I was delighted to see is that John Mosier, who is the pastor at Mount Soledad Church, just right here, he's in our presbytery, he co-wrote this Bible study with Carol. So you see John's smiling picture. He's just an amazing guy. So I'm going to pass this around. I, I just ordered this before the class started. Um, so I've not gone through it, but take a look at it. And if you're interested, that's something great to do after this study or with it. Uh, I think it's casketempty.org. Uh, no, casketempty.com. That's, that's a different um, resource here, but I'll pass the study guide around too if you'd like. I'll start this one in the back corner. That's right, exactly. Yeah, you'll see all the similar graphics and everything. God creates the world in living creatures. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And Liz looks like she wants to read for us. This is great, Liz. Um, I'd like you to read verses 1 and 2. And then I'm going to have you pause. Loud and proud. Great, just some observations. Anybody, what do you observe in the first two verses? Great, God created, the Spirit was covering. What else? I think that's good to know. Form, formless and empty, or formless and void? There was a beginning. See the spirit there, yeah. Liz, read the next three words in verse three. And God said, Great. If we were to look for the Trinity in what we've read so far, would we find the Trinity? Yes. Where, John? Great, great. So we've got the Spirit hovering, obviously, God the Father, pretty obvious. But the Word, John tells us, he's going to start this in the exact same way, the exact same words, when this is translated into Greek, NRK, that's how John's going to start his gospel, NRK. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then what we're going to find is that the Word became flesh, made its dwelling that Greek word, skenao, to make your dwelling, you could translate, it, translate that to tabernacle. He made his presence to tabernacle, just like we're going to see God making his presence here. So we see that the Son is there as well. So we see the Trinity right up front. And Liz is going to keep reading. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light. 
Everybody say, first day. First day. Keep going, Liz. Everybody say the second day. Second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered water, waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bears fruit with seeds in it, according to their various Everybody say the third day. Good, let's pause there for just a second. What did we see was created on day one? Light, yeah, and we can think of it in terms of separation, huh? Because God is doing separating here, he's ordering. He's putting things in their proper places. So separation of the light from the darkness, great. And day two, what do we see? Separation of the, great, the sea, <laughs> that would be this one, and the sky. Yeah, and the way that they put that is the firmament, so the ancients would have thought that there was actually something firm holding back the waters of the sky. Why did they think the sky was water? Because they live in San Diego. It's a blue <laughs> sky, that's why. So separated with a firmament, the sky, the waters above, and the waters below. So separation of sky and sea. And then what separation do you see on D3? Yeah, ground dry land from, from the sea as well. So again, this ordering, this placing in their right places. And Liz, I have no reason to stop you. You're doing so good. Thank you. Everybody say the fourth day. Everybody say the fifth day.
and, and the class saw that Liz's reading was good. Nice job. We're going we're gonna to pause right there, but note, we're not out of day six yet. We're right in the middle of day six. But what did we observe that God creates in day? We did one, two, three. How about day four? Yeah, the stars, the sun and moon, the orbs in the sky. Great. Okay, how about day five? Good. Sea creatures, and not only sea creatures, but what? Birds, Birds, right? Um, Yeah, did I say day five? Yes. Great. What do you remember God created on day two? He separated the sky from the sea, and now we're seeing that he's brought birds and fish. Interesting. Okay, On, on day four, if we go back a day, we saw that God puts stars in the sky and the sun and the moon, right? What did he separate in day one? The light from darkness. So now we have governing bodies that give us light and darkness, so to speak. What governs the day? The sun. What governs the night? The moon. And we get those in day four. So what we start seeing is you've got a relationship. If you've got day one, it's got a relationship to day four. You've got the realm, dark and light. Now you've got the ruler, sun, moon, stars. You've got the realm, day two, sea and sky. Now you've got the rulers of those. The fish rule the seas. The birds rule the skies. Now we've got separation of sea and land, and all of vegetation has been created on day three. What's going to rule the land? Anybody in the Navy would say, not just the land. (laughs) You're looking looking for earth creatures, and and then there's going to be a pinnacle of all of that on day six. It's going to be humanity, right? So what I've just proposed here is a way of interpreting Genesis 1. It's called the framework theory, framework theory, where you kind of see this lined up and this lined up here. I think this is really convincing. Here's why. Because it doesn't throw out the historicity of Genesis 1. When you read ancient Hebrew narrative, it uses a structure called vayiktol, and vayiktol is a narrative structure. It's kind of the way that um, if you opened your Bible and you found that things were reading, the text was reading in paragraphs, but then you turn the page, and now the text is offset and kind of in the middle of the page. What's the difference between the two? Let me give you an example. This, if you can see that, compared to this. You see the difference? Yeah, prose and poetry. Prose and poetry. In the same way, Hebrew has cues for showing us what is poetry and what is prose. Well, it's helpful in English if you read something that's rhyming. It's got to be poetry. Or if it's the editors do a great job of offsetting it to show that it's poetry. In Hebrew, there's a narrative structure where vayiktol, the is the is the Hebrew word and, and basically you just hear and this and this and this and this and this. It's It just moves from one thing to the next thing. That's narrative form. That's what you get in Genesis 1. You get narrative form. And yet, the structure, not just the grammar, the structure is incredibly poetic, isn't it? Day 1 looks like day 4. Day 2 looks like day 3. And so, or day 2 looks like day 5. 
All of that to say, I think it's important when we approach the book of Genesis not to do so with our own questions, but with the questions that the ancient readers would have had. And here I want to spend just a little bit of time on interpretation. Because when it comes to Genesis 1 and 2 especially, you just go, how do I make sense of this? I mean, if you look at the fossil record, you're like, humans are not five to 10,000 years old. If I added up all the generations, that's what it would say Adam and Eve are. Instead, the fossil record is showing us that humans are probably hundreds of thousands of years old, and you've got different forms of hominids, and I'm not a scientist, but you, you actually move into different species. So how do we make sense of this? Well, I think the framework theory shows us the poetry that's a part of Genesis 1. Remember this. You can repeat after me. The Bible was written for us. The Bible was written for us. But the Bible wasn't written to us. But the Bible wasn't written to us. In other words, the historical and cultural background is the ancient Near East. It's not 21st century United States. It's literature is largely a critique of other ancient myths, like the Babylonian myths, or the Sumerian myths, or the Egyptian mythology. You would have heard that in Jerry's preaching. Therefore, we must approach the terminology and narratives of scripture with the ears of an ancient Hebrew. So imagine this, is anybody uh, from a different country in this, born in a different country? Okay, imagine that um, uh, um, Ian, Whose, whose son is at City Tree. I think Ian's abroad right now, but Ian is, a, uh, is in the Canadian Navy. If Ian walked into our room and he said, I pledge allegiance to the flag of Canada, we would all know what Ian is messing with. It would just be honest, or it would be obvious for us. In the same way, there are cues in Genesis 1 where an ancient Egyptian or Sumerian or Babylonian or ancient Hebrew would say, oh, I know what it's playing with. I get it. And so like Jerry, for instance, was showing how all of your ancient, you know, a lot of your ancient gods were the sun and the moon and the stars. Those are your gods. But instead, they're showing up not until day four. And by the way, just as far as poetry goes, if we, there are some challenges in reading Genesis 1 as literal 24-hour days if the sun, which rules the day and gives us a 24-hour day, doesn't appear until day 4, right? It's not there on day 1, day, one, day 2, day 3. So I have to, um, oh, I think, okay, so here's, here's another example. When we think create into existence, we think that when, that's when something becomes something. It, it, it appears. It is. But when they think existence, they think, does it have a purpose? That's when it starts to exist, is when it has a purpose. And what God is doing in, Hebrew, in uh, Genesis 1 is he's putting things in their proper place and commissioning them, giving them a purpose. Be fruitful and multiply. Have, have this rulership. When they have a purpose, they come into existence, so to speak, for the Hebrews. For us, we say, no, when it comes into existence, that means it starts happening. So if we go back to verses 1 and 2, and we ask, what is that the earth was formless and void? What was going on there? How much time had passed before verse 3 even comes on the scene? 
Those are questions that the Hebrews do not answer for us. But science is not great at answering faith questions. It's terrible at answering faith questions. But this text doesn't answer our science questions. Does that make sense? Valerie. Sure. Yeah, so that would be when, when God speaks his word. And John 1 says the word is actually God. That, that would be God the Son because he becomes flesh and walks among us. There's another view other than the framework view that I think is important. Yes, Andrew, John. Well, uh, there is an alternative science uh, explanation. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, John. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you're looking for info, there's John. Um, another way to think of, of Genesis 1 and 2 is what's called the cosmic temple view. When God creates his creation, he sets it up the way that an ancient would set up a temple. And after you set up a temple, the deity would rest in the temple. Those of you that know your creation story, what does God do on the seventh day? Rest. He takes his rest. Where? In the creation. In the garden. In the ancient Near East, temples were typically dedicated in a seven-day ceremony with the God coming to rest in his temple once it was complete and his image was installed. Not only are sevens pervasively associated with the tabernacle and temple, in the Old Testament, which we're gonna read more about. But humans are the authorized image in God's temple cosmos. God's rest on the seventh day would refer to his royal dwelling in and ruling over the world he made, especially through humans to whom he delegates his authority. Isaiah 66 says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house he'll build for me? Where will my resting place be? Here God is explaining that the man-made temple is actually only a microcosm of God's cosmic temple. So, um, yeah, this is, uh, these are some ancient Sumerian cylinders that actually show a Sumerian temple ordering ceremony. For our second point, the Lord God is creator. He alone is God. Uh, remember that all of this would be um, written in a polytheistic world. We approach the text sometimes asking the question, is there really a God? That would not have been the question for the ancient Hebrews. Instead, it's, are there really so many gods? 
And the answer to that would be no. There's only one. He alone is God, the Lord. Uh, With this background, Genesis 1 and 2 is not setting out to prove to an atheist that God exists. Rather, it's to establish in a polytheistic culture that there's only one God, the Creator Lord. The sun, moon, stars, they're not gods, but they're Lord's, the Lord God's creation. And it's crucial for God's people to know, in no certain, no certain terms, that there is only one God. What's the first commandment of the ten? Yeah, there is only one God, right? You shall have no other gods before me. And what's the second command? Do not create for yourself a graven image, right? Don't, if you learn the commands, don't bow to any idols, right? There's only, there's only one God, so it's going to be central to the commandment that he gives his people. If you're going to be in relationship with me, you're in relationship with me. The Genesis account is less likely the, to the answer the question of what or how, but who. It's identifying who God is and who the reality is, uh, or who we are, in um, the reality of God's creation. Idolatry, by the way, is going to be the central problem for the Israelites. This idea that there's only one God is going to be so central. And so when we get to the prophets, you're going to see over and over and over again, fidelity to God is going to be likened to marital fidelity. And so questions of divorce and harlotry and kind of running around on your spouse, that's going to be central to Hosea. Oh, which is up here. We've got three northern prophets, basically. Hosea, Amos, uh, Jonah are kind of our three northern prophets. And Hosea, Israel is playing the harlot. It's unfaithful. The issue is idolatry. And then, John. I like that. That's great. God must be an engineer. (laughs) I like that. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. Um, God is going to create humans in his image and likeness. As you're looking at um, Genesis chapter 1, let's read verses 26 and 27. Martin, you got it for us. Awesome. Just to help with uh, verse 27, God created man, that's the Hebrew word Adam, and depending on whether it has a pronoun or not, when it doesn't have a pronoun in the Hebrew, it just says Adam, that's talking about, it, it will talk about one specific individual, Adam. When it does have a pronoun, Ha Adam, the humanity, saying mankind, and it's not speaking to one individual, it's speaking to all. But we see the image of God created mankind, so it's referring to humanity, not Adam. Male and female, he created them. And so the question is, 
Is God a man? No. Both male and female are created in the image of God. Why do we refer to God in fatherly language or as a he? Because that's how the Bible, that's, that's how the Bible refers to God. So when we use biblical language, but um, the, the idea that God is, is kind of the ancient grandfather with the big bushy beard, the scriptures tell us that God is spirit. God is spirit, and the image of male and female are both um, replicated from him. Let's talk about the word image here. Image was another word used for idols. Here's what's interesting. Humanity is going to have a problem with idol worship. They want to make the idols. They want to make something, in, we want to make something in our image. But the irony is we make something in our image so we, we don't have to be told what to do. Isaiah says, your idols have ears, but they can't hear. They have a mouth, but they can't speak. Well, good. I don't want to be told what to do. I don't care if this idol hears what I have to say or not. You know, I, I don't want to be told. God is actually using, I mean, the, the way that Genesis writes this is, it's an idol-fashioning ceremony. God is bowing down, and he's forming something in his image. But here's the difference. What happens after he forms Adam from the dust? He breathe life into us, breathe life into us. And that's why the whole, you know, the whole idea of human dignity comes to the fact that we're, we're not man-made, we're God-made. We have the life of God in us. And that's why human life is so valuable. It was common in the ancient Near East to say that a king possessed the image of a certain deity. Okay, so you would say, so-and-so, this king, rules in the image of Marduk, you know, the ancient king of whatever. Because he rules like Marduk does. He's in the image. He's carrying out Marduk's functional purposes. Also, when a king would conquer a new city, the king would often set up a statue of himself, like this one found at Tel Fekirhiri. It was in the, and the words are actually in the inscription, it was made in the image and likeness of the Hadad Yehi, the king of Guzan. That's actually on the inscription, made in the image and likeness. By using these, these terms in the inscription, it signals to the city that this statue is the essence and represents the substance of the king while he is not himself there. Okay? So it's not that physically it perfectly looks like him. That's not the idea. The idea is that it possesses the essence and authority, the character of the king who made it. But the Bible says that images like these, as we just said, they've got no breath in them. When, Adam makes, when God makes us, puts breath in us, and that means if we're made in the image and likeness of God, we are to rule in his way. That's why we've got this blue crown. He's going to give us a really specific commission. They are to rule over God's creation as God's royal representatives, as Martin just read. This is called, everybody repeat after me, creation mandate. Creation mandate. Um, uh, have dominion over the fish and the sea, over the birds and the heavens, over the livestock and everything that creeps. Be fruitful and fill the earth, verse 28, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds and the heavens and every living thing that moves on the ground. Um, Valerie. Yes, I, I just wanted to add that 
excellent. Right. Yeah. You know, I was thinking in the Quran, Oh, that's a great question for him, yeah. One especially because they're, they're um, monotheist. The Trinity is, it's anathema to what they believe. So I'd love to know what they have to say about that. That's really curious about that. Um, in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to find that rather than worshiping the creator, Hebrews 1 says we worship the creation. And Eve serves the creature, gives heeds to the serpent's words. And instead of human beings ruling over creation, sin and death rules over them. It's just like mystery men. If you do not learn to master your sin, sin will become the master of you. Or something like that. But Jesus is the image of God. Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. His exact representation and the firstborn of all creation. So we're going to find that Jesus actually possesses the solution to this shattering the image and likeness of God by um, not actually doing what we've been designed to do. They're to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. There, um, you might come a, uh, across kind of an argument of what's called an androgynous Adam. That means Adam in, in that one human person possessed both male and female qualities, but the mandate is procreation which you can't do unless you've got male and female. The goal is for humans to fill the earth as his representatives, as the cosmos is to be filled with the glory of God. And I want to point out, if you flip over to Genesis 9, 7, right after the flood, Genesis 9, 7, This command is, is reiterated, right? Who can read that for us? Susie? That's great. Be fruitful and multiply. And then it's reiterated. Flip to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. Yeah, sorry, Genesis chapter 17. And look at verse 6, Susie. Please. That's great. What did you notice was different about that language? What's that, Pauline? Kings, that's true. Yeah. The first couple of times it says it's a mandate, be fruitful and multiply. What does this say? Who's going to make them fruitful? God is. Instead, it's causative. And there's actually, there's a different way of putting that in Hebrew. It changes. God commands them twice, be fruitful and multiply. What happens? Cain kills Abel. They increase in population. They're killing each other. Sin increases, so God has to kill them. They're, they're not filling and multiplying the earth. And so God says instead, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And what we find when we read the book of, Gen of Galatians 
is that the seed of Abraham, God makes a promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you fruitful and multiply you. I'm going to make you a nation. The seed of Abraham turns out to be Jesus. Jesus is the, the one who comes as the promised child in the line of Abraham. And in Jesus, a great nation comes of every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every country. God is going to be the one who helps with this. And all throughout the Old Testament, it's a motif that barren women bear fruit. Barren women are brought to bear children because of the blessing of God. Listen to this. Abraham and Sarah, barren. Isaac and Rebekah, barren. Jacob and Rachel, barren. Those are the three patriarchal families that are supposed to be having kids. Uh, Manoah and his wife, that's Samson's mother. Turns out that Samson was born. Hannah and Elkanah, that's Samuel's mother. Uh, the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings. Elizabeth and Zechariah at the beginning of the book of John. Isaiah says this, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. This is a curse talking about how Israel can't give birth to good fruit because they try to do it without God. The solution to Israel's failure to usher in the kingdom is hinted at in a small prophecy at the beginning of Isaiah's career as a prophet. He tells King Ahaz to trust the Lord and as a sign that the Lord will work, he says mysteriously, and this is never answered in the book of Isaiah, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And we've got to wait about 800 years before we know what that one was about. Adam and Eve have life in the garden. They enjoy it. They are told, as priests are, to uh, guard and observe and keep the garden. Priests are told to do that in the book of Leviticus with the temple. Priestly language. As one uh, is a guardian of a sacred space, they are to be guardians of Garden of Eden. It is a sacred space. Adam is not princely principally a gardener, but he's a, he's a priest. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge are located in the center of the garden. God gives Adam and Eve a command regarding the tree at the center. God's word is of central importance. Um, when it comes to disciplining your children, this is one that I'm just slowly learning, is that it's really not about my girls doing what I say or not doing what I them not to do. It's about trust. What you, you've betrayed my trust. That's such a, it's so key, you know. And, and so, so many conversations, I find so much more fruit with the gospel with my girls when I say, what is this show about? Did you trust daddy or not? And I think that just brings it home for them. But every time I say that, I'm like, do I live my life in trust of God's word, that what he says is good, or do I have to try it out? And what we find is what Eve does is she relies on her own sight rather than God's word. She saw that the fruit was good for eating. She saw that it was good? No. Day one, God saw that it was good. Day two, God saw that it was good. Day three, God saw. That's God's job to see what's good and to tell us, not us to decide for ourselves. And yet so often we just say, that, that seems good to me. 
I'm, I'm going to do that. And that's what a life of disobedience to God, yeah, but it's just not, there's no basic trust there. It's just so fundamental. Oh, for sure. I mean, yes, I, I'll put on my non-Calvinist hat. And I don't think, I don't think, I don't think free will is a term that often gets us down the road very far because we realize, wow, everything, my breath is a gift of God's grace, you know, everything. But um, it's my sin. Yeah, it's my slavery to sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tree of life, the tree of, yep. Um, God commands, yep. God will die. Uh, yes, Adam will die if he disobeys God's command. All right, I think this is important. Those of you that have spent any time with this is our book of confessions. And the book of confessions is uh, what our denomination sits back on as far as traditionally the way that God's reformed people have interpreted the scriptures. How do we make sense of certain theology? Well, this is how God's people made sense of it. Today I quoted the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we're going to quote it again. What it seems like is that God has made a covenant with Adam. It's not exactly, it doesn't look exactly like the covenant he's going to make with Noah and Abraham and David later on, but he's made a covenant. What we call it is a covenant of works. So I'm going to read the question, and then we can read the answer. This comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and the catechism is just a question-and-answer form of teaching. What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? Altogether? When God created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience forbidding him to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. One more question. Did our first parents, Adam and Eve, continue in the estate wherein they were created? Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. When God has a relationship with his people, he anticipates it with his command. He puts it right out front. He, he draws them out of Egypt into Sinai, and they're at the base of, of Mount, Hebron, or Mount Sinai. Thank you. And uh, what's the very first thing God does in relationship with that nation? He gives them his law. Yo. Yeah. Yeah, Martin, I think that was better put than I I said it. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, So we find that the story of Adam, that's the human story. It's connected to all of Israel. Central to the relationship with God is his command. Obedience to the command. Walk by faith, not by sight. She saw it was good. Eating, she took it. No, walk by faith, not by your own sight. That brings us a relationship with God. And thus, life. Eve is created as Adam's kin. She is bone of my bones. Uh, Eve is what's called a helper, uh, azer. This narrative comes right after the command given to Adam. So what was she to help Adam in? Probably to obey the command. Probably. That they rely on each other to obey the word of God. 
we're almost done. We we're going to do a halftime review, but nope. Um, and we're not going to talk about this right now. If you want to talk to me more about some ways of interpreting the historicity of Adam and Eve, we can talk about that a different time, or I'll give you some resources. Or talk to John, because I think he's got a lot of resources. <laughs> too. Yeah. Uh, what happens in the garden? The serpent lies to Eve. Um, when you read the text, good translations say it this way. Um, did God really say... It's, it's negated in the Hebrew. So it's, it, basically it says, um, did, did God really say not that you will not die if you eat of the tree? It's really emphatic. It just kind of, it just changes God's language around, just turns it backwards. Um, uh, not you will surely die. And they listen to the creature rather than the creator. Eve sees the tree as desirable to make one wise. Uh, when you read the text, who's standing by her during all of this? Adam. So we might even think, gosh, there's a way to think about this. Adam's first sin may have been passivity. It's just standing there. Um, the way that the New Testament puts it is that Eve was deceived. Adam was the one who broke the commandment. It was, de it was delivered to him, and he sits by. Um, when Adam receives the fruit, the commandment's broken. Eve was not around when Adam received the commandment from God. Adam was at the scene the whole time. God comes in judgment. Oh, yep. Okay. But there's grace. Everybody say, bling! bling. Sin, judgment, grace. How is there grace? Um, what we read is what's often called the first gospel pro-evangelion, where God tells Eve, um, notice God doesn't curse Adam, he curses the ground. God doesn't curse Eve, he curses childbirth. Pains in childbirth, right? Um, but what does he say to the serpent? Verse 14, this is chapter 3. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, offspring, he, some specific offspring out there, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So it's the same verb, to bruise, to bruise, but who's won the fight if you've got one character who's got his feet on the head of the other one. This one won the fight, and that's Eve's offspring. And so the early church interprets this as Satan is going to nip at Jesus, but Jesus is actually going to be the victor in the battle. He'll be the one who ends with his feet bruising the head of the serpent. And so early readers would have already been looking for, I don't think we hear it anywhere else in the Old Testament. We really don't get it until the early church interpret, you know, Tertullian is writing about this, and he's like, that's where the gospel came through the first time. If only we saw it coming. Sin and death enter the world as a result of sin. Adam is the corporate head of all of humanity, and so that's what goes down. And Cain murders his brother. Sin, uh, judgment, he's going to be cast out, but he asks the Lord for mercy. What does God, God give him? 
Yeah. No one's allowed to kill you. How am I going to show the world that? A mark. A mark. The mark of Cain. And so there's actually, again, sin, judgment, grace. Everybody say, bling. Bling. We see it again. God is is still going to look out for Cain. And then, hope for humanity is going to come through Seth's line going to Noah. uh, Or, um... Yeah. I just wish we could go through so much more. Actually, I'm just going to finish it in two minutes. How about that? Ready? Buckle up. Um... All right, sin increases as humans multiply. We've talked about that. This is Genesis 6. God sends a flood to wipe out human beings, but he's saved. Uh, Noah is saved along with his family. It's really great for you to just read the back of your timeline on the ark. Does somebody have that for us really quick? Somebody just read the back of the timeline where the ark is. Valerie, do you have it there? Go for it. Oh, that's okay. Jay, do you want to read it for us? Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's find on the back um, the ark right here. Would you mind just reading that for us? Noah's ark. Noah's ark represents God's gracious salvation of the human race through Noah. He should heed to God's warning. Building the ark in obedience to God by faith. Great. Thanks, Jay. Um, here's where that grace starts. The Bible says Noah finds favor. That's what the New Testament, that's the word that's going to be translated as grace. Whenever you read favor in the Old Testament, it's translated as grace in the New Testament. It's the same, same word set. Favor. I think this is so important because we don't teach each other. Noah was good. Therefore, God loved him and saved him. No. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. He, he found grace. And yet... When I pick up children's books so often, once there was a very good man. His name was Noah, and he loved God very much, and God loved Noah. It may not be helpful that we're teaching kids, it starts with your goodness. That's not the only one. A long time ago, there was a man called Noah. Noah was a good man who trusted God. Maybe just Noah trusted God. But Noah was a good man. Noah and his family loved God. Remember what we're going to learn about Abraham. God calls him when he's worshiping other gods in Ur. All right? Um, God's going to make a covenant with Noah. And here's the covenant. God will not send another flood, even though sin continues after the flood. And he gives a sign, a rainbow to remind us of that covenant. I talked briefly about the genealogies and how they point to Shem. God's people are trying to build a name for themselves with the Tower of Babel, but actually God is going to build a name for them uh, through Shem. All right, with all that, here's your homework. Uh, when you leave, I'd like you to review uh, the names of each period and the symbols. See if you can get those 
those main events down, oh, Abraham, that was the call of Abraham, that's what happened then, oh, exile, the temple was destroyed, they went out in exile, but also, sin, judgment, grace, where did you see it today? Sin, judgment, grace, where did you, where did you see it or hear about it in the primordial history? And next week, we're going to learn about this man, and the story is going to continue. Can I pray for us? Lord, we give you praise for the freedom that we find in Jesus Christ. That in reading these stories, for us, their life, the curse fell upon a man who was driven to the cross um, for our sake. And so we thank you for the, the freedom, the liberty that we can walk in because of that. And Lord, we pray that that gratitude would lead to <clears throat> actions of trust in our lives just a joyful obedience to your commandment uh, because of the ways that you've loved us and given yourself for us. In Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Okay, thanks, friends.